that's nothing like, like it. it. Yeah. It's, it's like... <laughs> yeah, that's that excellent. Oh, that's very good. Thank yeah. I don't think a corn cracks what I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been Googling? <laughs> Telephones. <laughs> Welcome to Sustainable 60. Six, zero. And to celebrate this 60th edition of your weekly environmental podcast, All About People and the Planet, we are going to talk to a person about the planet, sort of. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, sort of. What we're going to do is we're going to talk to a famous author lady who happens to be a friend of mine called Amy Liptrot. And she has written a book called The Outrun. And it's all about nature and about how it helped her get over some rather bad times. Yes, we had a lovely, lovely time talking to the very, very talented Amy, who I think is probably going to be very famous quite soon. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we were there. Remember the day. Uh, but we were talking to Amy in stinky London in her house. Um, and, uh, well, you know, as ever, these are our views talking to Amy, not the views of our employers talking to Amy. I really must be clear about that. Uh, anyway, enjoy. It's a really lovely interview and uh, we implore you to read her book. So, hello, Amy. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hello. Hi all. Um, so thank you very much for inviting us to your London, what do you call it, a pédatoire? No, that's not right, is it? Ped, 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 what do you call it? Oh, are you talking Pied about? Pédatoire. Home. 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 Thank you for inviting us to your London home. It is a delight to talk to you. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. My pleasure. So uh, before we get into the main bit of our interview, um, the listeners to the podcast should know that you were at university with Dave. Uh-huh. And that means that they, like I, want to know all of the embarrassing things that Dave did. <laughs> oh, I I, well, Dave was um, the year above me at university and we were colleagues on the student newspaper, but I think a year back then he was, you know, much my senior and uh, <laughs> kind of, we, uh, you know, you look really? up... Really? <laughs> this, this Dave? I've never been anyone's senior. <laughs> well, he was the editor of the student paper and I, and I wasn't, so we, he was... Uh, um, yeah, uh, seemed much older, <laughs> oh, not much older, uh, looked up to him. But I did that, it was a job that I did the next year. Um, much and, better, uh, I think. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just remember some funny editorials that you and the others... Yeah, but we don't need to, to talk write. about those. Right <laughs> oh, now, no, there's no, 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 it's a family <laughs> podcast, I don't think we need to, don't think we need to come into that. Um, well, if by some bizarre twist uh, you were looking up to this Dave uh, back then. The tables have turned slightly because while Dave is fiddling around on this podcast, uh, you have now, um, well, you've just won the Wainwright Prize, very excitingly, for your wonderful, wonderful book. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and, and uh, how it came about? Um, about the book or the prize? <laughs> uh, start with the book and, <laughs> and then the prize, yeah. Ol has a habit of asking 25 questions in one go. So yes, you can you generally that. pick which, which bits you want to answer. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, uh, I mean, I've written my whole life, um, uh, both in... I've written diaries since a young age and uh, I've worked as a journalist in the past, uh, but then when some quite... Uh, 
dramatic or interesting things happen to me, it seemed only right that I would write about them, and uh, that's what kind of uh, developed into the outrun. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, it's uh, non-fiction, it's a memoir, I guess, but it, it's particularly focusing on uh, a certain time period in my life, which is when I returned to the Orkney Islands where I grew up, and also it uh, looks at my relationship with with alcohol. Uh, and those are the that's what it focuses on, rather than being a autobiography that attempts to kind of say everything about my life. Yeah. And um, and it's like I say, it's won this prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that. I mean, that, that sounds pretty amazing yeah i was um really chuffed just to be on on the shortlist um alongside um authors that i admire including robert mcfarlane and uh books that have been very successful uh um uh like uh, the herdwick shepherd book um and uh yeah, I couldn't, couldn't believe it that I'd actually won with being my first book and everything. Uh, uh, it was ironically sponsored by a beer company, uh, the, <laughs> no. the prize. So I could have had so much free beer, but um, uh, uh, but I was quite impressed that you know they that they didn't let that impact on the on the judges' kind of uh, oh, choice. Oh, so it's Wainwright the beer. That's mm. what. So it's not Wainwright the. Travel crisis. Coincidentally, it's both oh, right. actually. Um, it's yeah, uh, um, Albert Wainwright, the who uh, wrote these fantastic books about the Lake District, beautifully illustrated, which I got a set of for my prize. And then they have joined forces with the Wainwrights Beer uh, to do this uh, annual prize for nature and travel writing. Uh, that's what it's meant to be. And they said they had some debate about whether my book was actually a, a nature book. Um, so I'm quite pleased that they came down on deciding uh, that's where it was. <laughs> so in your book, you go back to Orkney, mm-hmm. where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, what's so bloody good about Orkney? Because <laughs> I've heard it hasn't got any trees and it's full of puffin poo. That's what I've heard about um, Orkney. Yeah, I mean, I hope that in the book I didn't kind of idealise the place too much or um, uh, may give it unrealistic interpretation because I think to visitors it can be quite a bleak place on on first visiting, uh, particularly on a on a rough day. Um, uh, it's a very open landscape, as you say, lack of trees and um, uh, just gentle rolling hills. But what there is in that is a lot of sky and a lot of sea. And I think you really notice the changing light and the changing seasons. And um, I think that's what I missed a lot of when I when I lived in the city. So, yeah, the, the space and um, the light <laughs> in particular, yeah, and a quite sort of elemental place i would say it sounds windy mm-hmm. uh, i think you i think you say in the in a book that the wind is almost constant <laughs> uh, and the, the the kind of maps are redrawn each morning by the crashing of the waves i mean that is that sounds quite hard um yeah i think that more than the cold the wind is the defining weather characteristic of, of the scottish islands uh and I grew up, the sheep farm where I grew up is on the west coast, um, so just edged by cl- Atlantic cliffs, so there's really nothing stopping the weather coming off the Atlantic there. And it was, it's quite a tough, uh, a tough lifestyle, particularly for a farmer, and quite unforgiving, a very salty kind of, uh, kind of air. 
Um, but my, my parents moved up there in the 70s and I think quite a lot of incomers might last just one or two winters, but my dad's still farming there, you know, nearly 40 years later. So the, the book opens, where something that strikes me about the book actually, mm-hmm. is it kind of gets calmer as it goes on. Uh-huh. I don't know, I assume there was something deliberate about that, but it opens with its most dramatic moment almost, which is the, the helicopter arriving uh, to take your dad away to be treated for mental illness, mm-hmm. yeah? yeah. Um, so right from the very start, you get the sense of, of your life on Orkney being wild, but then it becomes apparent that actually wildness, that the wildness is about you more than the place. And as you move to London, wildness becomes different. It's a sort of a wildness amongst people as opposed to a wildness in nature. So I'm really struck by the, the different ways that you talk about wildness I'm wondering if you could have I got that totally right I think there's definitely a slowing down in the book and um less so than it being deliberate I think it was a reflection of of what was going on in in me and my own psychology during the time that I wrote it um uh because it has some sections that are of my life in London, and a lot of them come directly from diaries and blogs that I kept at the time, so there's quite an immediacy to it. And I think the kind of opening up and kind of closer observation and slowing down is also what was happening to me over the couple of years when I when I returned to Orkney, and particularly when I moved out to this uh, small island, Pappy, and um, was there for a couple of winters by myself, and was just kind of unpicking the things that had happened to me and looking at what had formed me, of which I have, you know, the, the landscape and wildness of Orkney is very much part of, um, and lucky enough to, to be able to, to analyse that. And, yeah, and I do think that the kind of more extreme aspects of my childhood my father's mental illness and the landscape that I grew up in and the kind of quite uh, uh, dicey sort of knife edge of being on a small farm with life and death you know I think that kind of informed my character and I think you know later on in my life I I sought those kind of extremes of experience but in different in different ways So why have you come back to London? Um, it, it seems like <laughs> it's a place where certainly dramatic things have happened um, and it doesn't have the openness and the, uh, the wide landscapes that you talk about. So what stinks? What is yeah, <laughs> Dave refers well, to it as stinky is, London. This and, is, I think this is actually a more difficult question than asking me about like my booze hell or uh, my dad's mental illnesses because it's a question that I've been asking myself quite a bit over the since I've been back here this year um modern life is complicated I think uh with uh, work and love and um opportunities and uh yeah so anyway but it's been it's been convenient for me to be back here and also you know when I moved to London in my early 20s I came here because I wanted to be a writer and now I'm actually getting to do the things that I wasn't equipped for back then um uh however i am actually planning a, a move out of the city at the end of the summer and going back somewhere rural uh i went for a walk on the cliffs a few weeks ago and realized that i need to be getting out on a more regular basis for my mental health which is uh, tied into my ability to write yes uh-huh. So can you talk a bit about, so we're an environment podcast, and I think the main reason we wanted yeah, to yeah. chat to you is because of this 
idea that's in your book of the re- restorative, redemptive mm-hmm. power of nature. I mean, I don't know if you if you would agree with that, but do you think? I know Billy Connolly has this idea that the best thing you should do with any kind of teenage delinquent is bung them in the middle of the Australian outback for six days and let them get on with it. You know, and that would <laughs> that would sort of change their perspective on the world. Uh, can you talk a bit about whether you think? Is it sort of a cliche to say nature is a story? Is it more what was going on inside you or what happened to you there? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are two things for me, um, which is, you know, actually getting out, well, maybe three things, um, actually getting outside and kind of experiencing the natural world in Orkney and sort of repeatedly returning to the same place and understanding how the tides change and the seasons change and the weather change. And um, and then that combined with um, sort of learning about things, so learning about the bird species and uh, what's going on with the moon and then putting that together with kind of uh, first-hand experience. I think there's something very satisfying about that. Um, but the second or third thing for me that has been very helpful is is writing about these things <laughs> and you know while I am interested in birds I'm particularly interested in writing about birds which is a just a little bit of a distinction um and uh um but uh you know uh, going back home to Orkney and sort of turning point which for me which was getting this job working for the RSPB um oh, the corncrakes yeah, yeah 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 um you know that just really opened up a lot of new new ideas or you know returning to kind of what I experienced and knew about when I was a kid on the farm tell us about a corncrake because uh, they are famously difficult to see so can you describe one for uh, people listening I could play you a call off my phone or you could uh, could you um... before you do that <laughs> we, we've actually been practicing ah. uh, and I think I've got a better corncrake call than Dave. Okay, than Dave. I, I can't do it at all, so let's... Uh... My, my corncrake call is the best, I think. Well, okay, I think you go first. Okay. <clears throat> that's, that's nothing, nothing like, like it. it. No. It's, it's like... <laughs> yeah, that is excellent. Oh, that's very good. Thank you yeah. very much. I don't think a corncrake's what I thought it was. <laughs> what have you been Googling? <laughs> Telephones. <laughs> Oh, uh, okay. No, oh, that's. I don't need to play it off my phone now because that's very accurate. Yes, oh, thank you. Um, and yeah, they're these birds that were common over the whole of the UK, um, uh, but numbers rapidly declined in the uh, latter half of the 20th century, and now they're only found in the western and northern isles uh, in this country. What caused their decline? Was it loss of habitat, usual story? Or, yeah, well, it's, or it's, quite, it's quite specific um, in that they... They like living in in long grass, um, and they don't tend to fly. Even though they migrate from Africa, they don't. When they're disturbed, they tend to go down rather than flying. So they live in the grass that's mown for hay and silage. So when the mowers come along, um, they get killed, and particularly the chicks, and then particularly in bigger and bigger agricultural machinery and less and less um, kind of set-aside land, um, that's just, you know, it's very clear-cut. That's the reasons for for their decline. And because it is so clear-cut, I think that's why, you know, we really have a responsibility to try and keep the the few that we have left, uh, I felt, yeah. But you can't see them. (laughs) So how do you track them? What was it you were doing? Yeah, so I... You know, I had a job for two summers looking for this bird. I have only ever seen one. Ah. Um, <laughs> it was really weird. It was like I was 
sometimes I would doubt that they existed. Um, so it was, my, it was my job to locate every calling male corncrake in Orkney over the course of a summer, which firstly, the birds are nocturnal, so I did at night, between midnight and 3am. Secondly, they live in the long grass, so I did it by by ear, listening for their call, and I did it by car, so I drove around and, like, wind the windows of my car down, listen for two minutes, go, no corncrake here, drive 500 metres, wind the windows of my car down, go, like, crossing the grid references off for, like, seven weeks, um, covering the whole of Orkney, and most nights I didn't hear a Uh, (laughs) corncrake. Did you not find yourself at any point sitting in your car going, what am I doing? Yeah, absolutely, the whole time. (laughs) Sometimes it felt, yeah... um, like I was sort of chasing this phantom that yeah didn't really exist. However, because I'd begun writing about my time back in Orkney, what to some people could seem like this incredibly monotonous kind of unfulfilling job, for me, I started to tune into the other sounds of the island at night. And because yeah. it was midsummer, basically the sunset was turning into sunrise, and I was felt like the, I was the only person awake, and I was seeing these you know magnificent sunrises and. Um, becoming able to identify the other birds and um, finding good stuff to write about, seeing rare type of cloud and um, yeah, it was it was magical really and a gift for for a writer. I I mean, it sounds like the perfect job for me. I would absolutely <laughs> love to do that. It, I I think it sounds meditative and and. And beautiful and forces you to listen to things you'd never listened mm. to. Is that is yeah, that fair? Yeah, and I had to go off to... Uh, oh, it's a group of islands, so I had to go to the smaller islands. And then when I found the birds, I had to go and um, talk to the to the farmers whose land they were on. And um, in the RSPB scheme, like we offered them money to either delay the mowing of their fields or if they couldn't do that, to do corncrake-friendly mowing, which is just basically mowing from the middle of the fields outwards to just give the birds a bit more of a, a chance ah. to to escape. Um, and that's how I got the name the Corncrake Wife because uh, in Orkney people tend to refer to just all women as wives. So I'd turn up at the door in my RSPB sweatshirt and be like, the, the Corncrake Wife is here. <laughs> and like, Hi. <laughs> And yeah, again, I got to yeah, talk to these different farmers who were, you know, always up for discussing. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. D- did you ever make up a corncrake? Because uh, who would have known if you said, <laughs> yep, heard a couple of corncrake? Well, actually, I've heard about it the other way around in that a farmer would place a recording of a corncrake. No, it was all. In order in order to get the to get the money to get the funding for their land. Oh. So um, that's just a rumour. <laughs> oh I've just got a great way for to some money. Go and sit in a field in Orkney and make your corncrake noise. So a farmer will pay me to lie down in long grass yes. and try not to get mown up by a combine or something and yes. make my corncrake noise. And yes. sc- scam the RSPB. Yeah. <laughs> oh no that, that, I can handle that actually. I want to ask you about whale vomit. That's what I want to ask you about. Huh, ambergris. So, yes, so mm-hmm. we talked about ambergris back in episode something, um, because there was a story in the news about this couple that had been walking down a beach uh-huh. and they were attracted by the smell of rotting the fish. foul smell, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, firstly, we thought that's weird, whoever gets attracted by the smell of rotting fish. So you thought you'd found some. Yeah, well... Um... My dad's got a friend who's a keen beachcomber and the friend told my dad about the existence of ambergris and as he described it, dad said, 
I think we have a lump of that, this lump of waxy material that had been sitting about in the um, in the farm buildings for, for years and years. Um, so then we re- researched into it and discovered that it fetches almost the same price per weight as gold. And we weighed this lump that we had and we think it's probably worth like maybe a hundred grand. And <laughs> wow. um, so we had, a, well, we had a few weeks of excitement of like trying to perform experiments like if you it's meant to burn with a puff of white smoke so we were like burning little bits and going this is worth about 200 pounds but we don't we're so rich we don't even care Uh, Um, it's like the Orkney (laughs) equivalent of burning 50 pound notes yeah yeah um however then dad did send a sample off to a um french parfumier because it's used in the perfume industry and was informed that it wasn't actually (laughs) ambergris um what was uh, it then it was uh, the farm used to be a blacksmith's and it could be it, like burnt down horses hooves it was some kind of animal material but not um actually sperm whale um oh. yeah I've, I've got here's a sperm whale tooth that that my dad got for me wow yeah <laughs> describe what you've got uh i've got a very large tooth um it's about the size of uh, it's probably about the length of my index finger <laughs> it's actually quite... small for a sperm whale tooth Really? Yeah. It's quite, it's very pointy, uh, and it's quite heavy. It's beautiful. But yeah, that was there was a there was a whale washed up in Orkney recently near to Christmas, and then my dad asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said, "See that whale that's sitting on Evie Beach? I want one of the teeth." Of course. <laughs> so, he, so he went down <laughs> and, and got that for me. So that's another yeah. So, uh, we, what what he what we could have done is actually gone and cut the stomach open of that rotting sperm whale to look for ambergris. Um, you, you were aware what a strange sentence that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is a, a, a tangent, but there you go. <laughs> Do you find people's attitude to wildlife strange at all? So, And what I mean by that is... Um, in cities, cities are quite wild places, actually. They're certainly wilder than, you know, London's wilder than it was mm-hmm. when I grew up in it. It's foxes all over the place, oh, yeah. you know, m- much wilder. But yet people um, don't really experience wildness very often in their lives. Do you think people should? you think that's a thing that um, be good? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's maybe easier than people realise sometimes. Um, it just takes a bit of... Well, in places like Orkney, you know, you can just go at a certain time of year and stand on the edge of a cliff and look down to where the um, grey seals are pupping. And it's it's an incredible sensation, the knowledge that this whole, you know, thousands co- strong colony is just living their lives so kind of close to, to us, really. Um, uh, yeah, and I realised that I was lucky to, to grow up in a place like that and... Um, yeah, uh, but other people should be able to too. But I think I have a slightly. I'm a I'm a farmer's daughter, so I have quite an unsentimental, mm. quite practical view about kind of um, animals and, and wildlife. Sometimes I think. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think somebody people know that I'm interested in birds so they might tell me oh this you know I found this chick that's fallen out of a nest and I'm well like well it's you know it's gonna die that's what happens uh, you know a large percent I care about the overall fate of the species but I, I'm very unsentimental about individual examples of that species I and I think perhaps that's the difference between people that maybe don't live in the countryside or, mm. or you know people that have a yeah a slightly a 
soppier kind of view. <laughs> You've said that you don't uh, you don't get sentimental about individual animals. Is that always true? I mean, when you were when you were up, you do a lot of sea swimming, don't you? And a lot of time with the seals. And have you ever found yourself sort of bonding with a seal? <laughs> If that, Excuse me. If that's <laughs> if not you, a strange question, you want you want to you want to avoid the um the uh, the uh, uh, what do you call them the male seals um at uh, certain times of year. Oh, there's been a thing. <laughs> yes, there was a thing in the news last month about this. Uh, where is it that they have said they are going to? Uh, oh, it's somewhere. Where is it? The, 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 they're freaking out. Oh, St. Ives, and they're saying people used to jump in off the pier at St. Ives and swim with the seals, and they're now not allowed because the seals will rip your hand off, apparently. Yeah. Well, my experience with seals is that they're often attracted by your presence. They, you're, they'll be interested in you, they're curious, but they always maintain their distance, and I think um, uh, I respect that. And oh, there has been, th- I did, I found a a washed up baby seal, um, actually twice I have done, and some people were recommending that I shipped it off in a container to the seal rescue place. I just really had a had a real strong aversion to doing that actually, um, which I know some people would disagree with. And look, and in this case, the seals both made it back, or they were helped back towards the sea to take their chances in the wild, which I felt was the right outcome for them. Uh, yeah, so it's a harsh old play. You know, I've you know many seal pups don't survive each season, and I don't think that's just the way it's always been. And I I don't think we need to spend loads of money in rescuing the the odd one, even though I like seeing seals. And what I, what I really want to do is when I'm swimming in the sea, is to have goggles on and be able to go under and observe the seals underwater. I think that would be wonderful. I just haven't managed to uh, to synchronize it yet. I just remembered a question that I was pleased with, so I'm going oh, to say... Oh, I'll look forward to this then. <laughs> uh, so you talk um, towards the beginning of your book um, about a job you had, uh, which was basically uh, a cleaner in the, um, uh, in oh, the, the oil terminal. terminal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, you talk about the, t- the dependence of the, of the community around there on the, uh, that industry. Um, the oil industry, and particularly North Sea oil, is something we talk about on this podcast, and it's obviously quite high profile because it seems to be in sort of terminal decline. Mm-hmm. Um, terminal. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even mean. It. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Terminal decline. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, it, it must be quite a profound shock to people living. There. Yeah, I don't know if the uh, the problems that they've had with the job losses and things that they've had in Aberdeen for example have quite uh, hit Orkney yet but it will do and it will have impact on the economy but personally speaking you know I think uh, less reliance on on fossil fuels is uh, you know uh, what needs to happen um, despite uh, um, despite those effects and that we shouldn't be just trying to find dig even deeper and find even more stuff uh um in Orkney there's what has been a big hope to kind of replace uh, the oil industry is the renewables uh, you know um wind and tidal and wave power um uh which sounds incredibly positive uh although it was actually 
looking like that would have a personal impact on on my family um because the outrun of the title of my book is a stretch of land at the farm and that has been cited as the um uh uh kind of preferred site for a large substation um for the wow. um wave and um tidal power devices because they have to have somewhere to gather in the energy before it's shipped off to the grid so that would be you know a kind of sacrifice of an individual place or farm, you know, for the kind of greater good. And people think that I'm going to be, you should campaign against it, Amy. But because I'm sort of in favour of renewable energy and we have to get energy from somewhere, I think it was, um, you know, I was ambivalent about it or, you know, I would go for it. Plus, it looked like my dad would make quite a bit of money out of it. (laughs) Uh, However, that is currently on hold, that project. Um, There's... Uh, um, I think the renewables has not quite progressed as as fast in Orkney as that it had been hoped for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, getting the devices to the kind of um, commercial level because they're in the flipping Atlantic Ocean and the very forces that they're trying to uh, harness smash them up. And secondly, it, there, would need, there would need to be an improved link to the national grid um, from Orkney, which is a vastly expensive and contentious political issue. Uh, so I would love to see the renewable energy taking off you know even more in Orkney as a replacement for the um for what's been for 40 or so years with the oil industry um and yeah as for uh economic and social impacts I guess we'll just have to suck it up (laughs) your book has just come out in paperback Mm -hmm. after having been a huge success in hardback are you sick of the sight of it yet? Because, like, every time I see <laughs> something probably, you do on social media... Where, where are you going with this, though? Well, it's just... Uh, I've often thought about God Save the Queen, right? That the Queen must be totally sick of the sound of God Save the Queen, right? Which is not to say it's a song about how brilliant you are, you know, so you're not, you're not really going to get bored of it. But it is, a, you know, 90 years of everyone, you know... You're hearing that six times a day. What I'm asking, everywhere you go, you must see, I'm holding up the book, you must see this image and you must, has it, have you, has it started, it's a, the, the front cover of the book, at least in the UK. Well, it helps, I'm very fond of the cover. Yeah, it is lovely. Um, I think, not quite yet, I'm actually just so thrilled that people are interested um, and um, I'm, yeah, not yet sick of it, but I imagine that I will be come come the winter which is when I plan to sort of take a step back from uh, the outrun and uh, start writing some new stuff Ooh, yeah. so what's next <laughs> um, oh I bet you get asked that all the time yeah, I, I, what are you doing I, next Amy and then I have this sort of pained look on my face um, I'm, you know, I, I, I keep a diary every day um, and I write a lot of stuff through personal experience uh, I'm interested in you know, continuing writing non-fiction Stuff to do with the natural world, but also stuff to do with the internet uh, and also things to do with Berlin. I don't really know. I have some bodies of material and I need to develop them. There's something that I'm working on about grey-like geese, um, for example, which are a species whose numbers have, um, unlike a lot of species in Orkney, um, they have multiplied many times and they're now one of the commonest birds. And I'm kind of interested in looking at sort of... uh, the idea of native versus invasive species and why this one has been successful and also um, kind of uh, 
they, their meat has been licensed to eat in Orkney, which wild geese meat isn't usually. And um, yeah, just looking at this, using this one species that's been very successful, looking at it from a number of different viewpoints, the kind of ecology viewpoint, the kind of um, farmer's view, because it's farmers are annoyed that they eat grass. and um, yeah, Farmers are annoyed that they eat grass. Well, yeah, I mean, there's huge flocks of them and yeah. they come and they'll eat a lot of grass, you know, on a, on a field. Bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Presumably blowing the cover of a corn crake in the process then. <laughs> and, fa- and farmers go, come... Marcus, go on. They ca- coming up with ever ingenious ways to, to scare the geese, um, which... Or, only ever last for a short period of time before the geese get get wise to them. Is it a bit like my mum and dad's next door neighbours who have for about 20 years now been in um, constant battle with a heron who eats their goldfish (laughs) and every summer they will have a new fake heron or like the sound of a heron (laughs) and every time the real heron just comes and sits next to it and eats the goldfish. They're they're not stupid. So um, I want to ask you a little bit about music because I know music is an important thing for you. Um, when you were at your remotest in Pape, were you without music, or was music always always there? And what did you what do you listen to, and what's your what's the relationship between music and nature? For you? Huh. Um, that's a nice question. Thank you, Dave. Um, You're welcome. Uh, yeah, uh, I actually sometimes think that the book. The Outrun was influenced more by kind of as much by kind of like rap lyrics and song lyrics as sort of nature writing or literature. I think I, I was listening. Yeah, I was listening to music um, when I was living on Pape. Uh, there's this hip hop band called Why, um, which they just are really inventive in his lyrics and kind of use of sort of juxtaposition of imagery. And I think that was actually a big influence on on the book. And also sometimes I think that um, that Bjork song Hyper Ballad. I think I was oh, maybe yeah. trying to write a kind of literary equivalent of that song. Um, and I also think that you know, music journalism, which is what I kind of grew up reading, I think kind of, I was just thinking about this the other day, had a kind of influence on my nature writing and sort of sometimes the wit and the absurdity of, of that type of writing, you know, has informed me, I, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah, but I have, I think I've, you know, been more about books than, than music in recent years, but... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, and just that kind of punk sort of spirit, I suppose. And uh, when I was writing the book, I went, I had, I, I, I did a fanzine when I was a teenager and I found some copies of this fanzine. And then I kind of had this teenage me on my shoulder when I was writing. When I, it was actually when I was doing the final draft and it kind of um, reminded me to kind of not not shave off too many of the weirdnesses in the book and to keep it a bit spiky and a bit kind of strange at some points. And, you know, I think that comes from, you know, kind of, counterculture kind of music scene stuff and that's you know my in me and my take on nature writing I suppose yeah well Amy the book is fantastic um as you know obvs uh we liked it very much uh what's the one question that you no one ever really asked you what's the thing that you sort of when you're surprised that no one's gone well, into? sometimes people have been gentler on me than I feared I've I've uh, uh, nobody has actually said, is it all true? And questioned the veracity of it, uh, which, you know, I was prepared for. Um, uh, is it all true? 
is all true, but what there is in it is some uh, sometimes this kind of conflation of characters and, and time periods, kind of a simplification of. And there's a couple, there's one particular character that's actually, that's actually a combination of a number of different characters. And I have never told anyone that before because no one's ever ah, asked me. See, uh, <laughs> and I guess it's the things that I feel aware of, you know. And it's not somebody's gonna gonna trip me up on it. And I'm I'm here. I'm confessing now. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you. Oh, thanks, Amy. Amy's nice. I told you she was nice. You I? did, you did. I'm very disappointed that she didn't dish a lot more dirt on you and your uni days because I know it exists. She was obviously being nice and professional and kind. That's right. Well, she she too is worried that maybe one day I'll be powerful and she'll have to keep on my... I doubt it. I, I doubt it too. Um, yeah, that was lovely. Thanks, Amy. Uh, her book, The Outrun, is just come out in paperback and is available from all good bookshops and, you know, all bad ones. It's blinking everywhere. Yeah. It's all over the place. Um, Bad, mediocre, indifferent bookshops are all selling this book. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. We will be back next week for Sustainer Babble 61. You can tell us what you thought of the interview. You can find us at Twitter at The Babble Wagon. You can email us at hello at sustainababble.fish or find us on Facebook. Just search for Sustainer Babble. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Amy, she is on that there Twitter. Her, her Twitter handle is at Amy underscore May. Very good. Nicely done. We forgot to ask her that, didn't we? Yes. So we're doing it now. Brilled bags. All right. Well, I shall uh, speak to you next week then, I suppose, me old chum. Very much look forward to it. Ta-da! Bye-bye.